0: Paul is wrapping up his letter to the Philippian house church. We are in chapter four. We're on the home stretch of finishing this letter um, throughout the end of 2020. Um, Paul's wrapping up this letter, and last week he talked about what it looked like to be citizens of heaven, to be a colony of the king. We had some really big discussions about what that looked like last week but we're about to get really practical here in the next few weeks. And I'm really excited for this. Paul is wrapping up this letter and he begins chapter four by saying, therefore. And our encouragement was that you would have read, already read the passage in your house church. Um, And so that word therefore is that in light of everything that we've said, I've said so far, Paul said, in light of all that, he goes on, my brothers and sisters, You whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Paul's just gushing affection on the church. He loves them. He's in prison, 800 miles away from them. They've sent him a gift to help him. He's sending them back a thank you letter carried by Epaphroditus. And this thank you letter has encouragement, It has some challenge in it that we're going to get to. But he calls them his brothers and sisters. He calls them uh, the whom I love and long for, my my dear friends. And and I I can kind of relate to this because, in a sense, over this last uh, chunk, um, you know, 35 weeks or whatever, not being able to gather together like we normally used to, um, I've missed so many of you. Some of you have had enough of, but <laughs> I've missed so many of you. Um, I haven't seen some of you in a long time, and um, I know you're in a house church community, and you still have people connecting with you and caring for you, but I miss you. You're stuck seeing me, but I don't get to see you. I don't get to interact with you, and, and um, I can honestly tell you that, as I've talked to many pastors, there are some, some pastors around that... Um, they serve their congregations really well, and they care for their congregation really well, but they really don't love their community. Um, I, I love you guys. Like, I I cannot wait to be more together um, one day. But in the meantime, uh, Paul is writing this letter, and he calls him his joy and his crown. And the word crown in Greek is stephanos, which is the actual term that they would use the crown for for if you won a, a race, uh, like a, at, the, at the Olympic Games, and for us now, we get gold medals, we meaning <laughs> athletes, but um, a gold medal is the idea here, and Paul's saying, I'm where, I, you're like my crown, you're like my, my highest achievement, um, and, and you're, you're my joy, um, and it's kind of like the idea of parents, like all the hard work that you put in towards parenting your children, um, what, is, what is the goal? What is the, what is the reward of that? Well, it's your children. It's, it's them growing up to become uh, followers of Jesus and to make an impact in this world and to bring you joy um, in relationship. And it, but it's hard work. It's hard work to raise children. And and Paul's saying that this has been a hard work as well. You're you're my joy and my crown, and I've worked hard to see this happen. And so he sees God at work in them, and then he circles back and he says, stand firm in the Lord. And this is uh, the central, this kind of alludes back to the central point of Paul's letter. Paul is writing the, this letter, remember, in the style of Greco-Roman rhetoric, which means that uh, if you could nerd out and pick apart his letter, you could see the different chunks of how rhetoric comes together to create an argument, to create a focus in the letter. And what we've learned way back at the beginning of this series was, in chapter 1, verse 27, was, was Paul's apodasis, his, his thesis statement, if you will. Like the central core of his letter. And it all revolves around this. Whatever happens, verse 27, live as citizens of the gospel of the king. Live as citizens of the gospel of the king. And then he goes on to say this: then whatever, whenever whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm. There's that word, there's that phrase again, stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith. Now, at the end of the letter, Paul here is circling back to that idea of standing firm, okay? And remember, standing firm is a military term that would bring about the imagery in the minds of the Philippians. Some may have been veterans, but you see Roman soldiers all around you because it is a colony. And the idea of of standing firm was the idea is Roman soldiers uh, would stand in line, shoulder to shoulder, shield overlapping shield against an enemy out in front. And the idea was, is that you're... you, you would not ref- retreat or flinch, and the way your feet were positioned, the Roman uh, footwear was designed to actually have the heel dig into the soil. That's where we get the phrase, dig in your heels. And so as a whole wall of soldiers would dig their heels in, lean forward, and overlap their shields, that is the imagery that Paul is getting at. For you and me, we read that and we go, oh, Paul's giving us a pep talk. Hang in there. No, no, no. It's much more intentional and much more communal than just hang in there. Um, What does it actually mean for our day-to-day life? Because it kind of sounds a little ambiguous, like stand firm. What does that mean? Um, Well, Paul goes on here in the end of the letter to list out the things that show you how to stand firm. That these are the areas of your life that um, bring about and, and, and show you the practicality of standing firm. So he he does a one-off list, um, and and it, it kind of starts in verse two. We're going to get into that. Be of the same mind. Uh, rejoice in the Lord always. Verse four. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Verse five, do not be anxious about anything. verse six. and then verse eight, think about things that are noble and right. And there's a great list there that we'll get into in a couple of weeks. But chapter four, you just need to understand, is not a sequence of thought. it's actually a shotgun blast. So Paul is is is, is bringing to bear what it looks like to stand firm for this Philippian house church. He's saying that, Here's what it looks like, okay, to live as the colony of the king. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Here's what it looks like to, to see heaven, the will uh, of God, the rule and reign of God come to earth. And so for today, let's unpack the first, let's unpack the first example. Because the first example comes to us um, with a couple characters. Paul says, I plead with you, Odea, and I plead with sintiki to be of the same mind in the Lord. Okay, so apparently there are two women in the church who are not getting along so well. And this never happens really much anymore, so we're going to move on. Um, just kidding. <laughs> this very much happens in our, in our lives. Uh, their names are actually named after the goddess of luck, and success. And lucky and success are not getting along. And in fact, they're at each other's throats. The word has actually gotten to Paul, so it's obviously been a big deal for a while. Then there's Epaphroditus' travels. Then there's Epaphroditus' travels back. So my guess is this issue grew, or it festered, or it was just over time, these two women didn't get along. And we don't know why. But we do know that they're most likely leaders in the church. Okay? We'll get into that here in a second. But their disagreement was likely causing a rift and maybe even some factions within the church. And Paul is harping, he's been harping on unity this whole time. Being of the same mind, being united, all those things. And so remember this letter is being read out loud. Uh, Paphroditus shows up, Sunday night house church, courtyard, Lydia's house. He stands up and he reads this letter. And it, Paul actually uses their names in the letter. And you can imagine they're sitting there, probably on opposite sides of the courtyard. Um, lucky success, <laughs> right? And um, And he says hey, lucky, hey, success, you you need to get along. You need to figure this out. You need to be of the same mind. Um, the word here in Greek is, it's one word, be of the same mind, is phronesis. And what it means is to be intent on the same goal, to be intent on the same outcome. And it, he's talking about unity, not uniformity. So the idea here is, We're all going to the same, the outcome is Christ. The outcome is resurrection. The outcome is the gospel. Uh, We may disagree on how to get there, but we're all going to the same place. So we need to be of the same mind. And it's interesting because the last um, probably two months, I've met with three church planters who are coming to Arvada to start churches. And they are wildly different in their approach. And they are very different in their um, the flavor of their church and the message of their church, but ultimately they're all going in the same direction. Um, it's kind of like um, disagreeing on how to get to a, a certain location. Um, you can take a bunch of different routes to get there. The point is, is that's where we're going. And so what Paul is saying is, we may get there different in different ways, but we need to come together and be of the same mind. And and the goal here for Paul. The goal here is not what's best for me, not what's best for for my situation, but what's best for the kingdom of God. And so he's calling these women to be of the same mind, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And he goes on and he says in verse 3, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women. So Paul's actually encouraging a third-party mediator to help them figure this out so that they can go forward, okay? And Amy he says this, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Uh, and, and you need to get this. This is really, really important. These are not bad women, okay? These are not cancerous, bad, manipulative women. These are leaders in the church, Okay, these women are actually contending at Paul's side, meaning they are by his side doing the work of the gospel and they are his joy and his crown. Both of them. He doesn't side with one or the other. He's saying you are contended. Both of you are contending at my side. Now, this is really huge. This is really important. No matter how godly or mature you are, you will have conflict. You will have conflict. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. We will have conflicts together. You will have conflicts with me. Some of you more than others, but you will have conflicts with me. I will have conflict with you. We will have conflict because we're human. Because we have drive and we have, uh, we, on the positive side, we have drive and ambitions and, and ideas and creativity. On the negative side, we have sin. We have pride. We have selfish ambition, Paul talks about. And so he says, I'm actually wanting you, my true companion, to step in and help these ladies get to this place. And he says, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Okay. The book of life. Uh, it's, a, it's kind of an idea um, all throughout scripture. Um, he's saying it's not by accident your names are in there. Not by accident at all. Um, he's like, here's what I want you to understand. You are living the long game, you are playing the long game here. This isn't a short term game, this is a long term fight, journey push. And uh, might as well work things out right now. You, You are going to be together. You are going to be in relationship. Your names are written in the book of life. She's not going anywhere. You can't just avoid her for a few decades and I hope it goes away. Your names are written in the book of life. It's, it's time to figure this out now. Why don't we live as if we are going to live in the day of the Lord? Paul is calling them to deal with the problem, not to run away, not to isolate, not to pretend. Paul is calling them to deal with the problem. See, it's a human tendency for us to, to take off, to bolt, to, to cancel, you know? Um, and, and our culture presses that in on us right now, so big. Um, conflict, you'll have conflict. In, so say this, you have conflict and a friendship. Our culture t- says, well, find a new friend. Uh, conflict in your, in your church Hey, there's a lot of good churches out there. Conflict in your marriage? Get another marriage. Now, I some of you know this. I meet with a, a close group of pastors in the Arvada community, and we talk about this all the time. Um, tumbleweeds. Um, there's tumbleweed people. And uh, tumbleweed people are people that just kind of, roll on into the next church, you know, and they're just kind of tumbling around, and then they, they'll they show up in a church for three, six months, maybe a year or two, and then there'll be conflict, or there'll be something hard, or there'll be something difficult, and then they'll just kind of tumbleweed back to another church, and it, it's so funny because we sit around, And we talk about the tumbleweeds. We're like, hey, so-and-so's at your church now. Oh, yeah, well, they were on my leadership team. Well, uh, yeah, And before they started this. And we just crack up. We just think it's hilarious. In a sad way, it's it's super sad because um, we're missing out on this part you know, something comes up and there's conflict. I mean, think about this Philippian house church. They had no other options for community. You follow Jesus. You're, you're apprenticing Jesus. You're a part of a colony of heaven and you live in Philippi. You don't have a whole lot of choices. You got to stick it out. You got to deal with it. Your name's lucky. Your name's success. Let's figure this out. There's nowhere else for you to go. And, and, and all of this happens because a lot of us just don't know how to deal with conflict well. Or we, um, How do we love and forgive over and over again with people who are also image bearers of Jesus? Now, now notice what Paul does not do. This is really important as we talk about this. Now, and, and I want to encourage you, if you're sitting there, you've probably already had this thought there's probably somebody that's come up potentially in your mind already. That the spirit is already doing that work. And I want, to, I want you to understand the things that Paul is not saying and that Paul is saying. Paul does not do, he doesn't take sides. He doesn't take sides at all. Now, there are two sides to every story, and I know this really well. I mean, the reality is is there's two sides to all the stories that I'm involved in that have had conflict. There's my side, my selfish ego side, and there's their side. And a lot of times what will happen is, is people will come to me and they'll download on me, so-and-so did this, they said that, blah, 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 and and I'm old enough to know that in the back of my mind, there's like, okay, well, what's the other side of the story? Like, what, what's, what are they not saying? What are they not emphasizing? And Paul just pleads with them both. He doesn't take sides. He pleads with them both. Paul is on the side of Jesus. He's on the side of uh, reconciliation, forgiveness, forgiveness. Um, he's he's pleading with them out of Philippians two, where it says, "This is how you should treat each other. You should treat each other like Jesus treated you. Humbled himself, no selfish ambition. Came to you know the whole. You remember. Second thing he doesn't do is he doesn't downplay it. He doesn't downplay it. He he it may have been a huge deal. It may have been a really big deal, and Paul doesn't downplay it. He's like yeah, get over it. He doesn't do that. He pleads with them to work it out. And the other thing is he doesn't, he doesn't claim or he doesn't intend that they're going to be best friends forever after this. Paul doesn't say, work it out, go back to hanging out like you did before. No, Paul's just pointing them towards the book of life. He says, be of the same mind. He says, have the the mindset, the same mindset of Christ. And here's what, so we know what Paul doesn't do. Here's what Paul does do. He does deal with the issue. He he does highlight that there's an issue going on. He doesn't um, hope it goes away. Now, many times in my life, um, I am not a conflict. I don't run to conflict. I'm like, Oh, this is great. I love to have face-to-face, intense conflict with people. I don't. But I noticed in my, um, in my life, and in my, one of the holes in my leadership was not dealing with conflict well. And I would literally just pray and hope that conflict would go away. Paul doesn't do that here. I mean, he's not passive-aggressive about it. He's not like, I... Th- I feel like there's two people in the church, you know, he, he just deals with it. He calls them out. He calls them out. He says, "Sentiki, Euodia, deal with it. That's what he says. And the second thing he does is he calls the whole community to work it out with them because people have taken sides. And he he knows that this is an important, you know, moment in the life of this church, that these Two ladies figure this out. He says, we are a family. Says, this is a house church. This isn't, this isn't like you and me have experienced church for the last few decades. The American version, a crowd full of spectators who walk into a church, listen, and then walk out and talk about, well, was it good? Or, you know, that's, that's not what this is. This is a house church. That everybody knows each other, that they're embedded in each other's lives. And the third thing he does, he calls them to see the issue through the lens of the gospel. That's what he does. He's like, in light of the gospel, in light of uh, being, uh, announcing the um, the royal coming of Jesus the Messiah, let's work this out. Let's figure this out. Let's get to the bottom of this. And this is what living the long game looks like. This is what having our eyes on the horizon looks like, okay? What is best for the gospel in my city, in my church, not for me, but in the city and in the church, Um, eyes off of ourselves, that is the way of Jesus. That is what it looks like to In practicality, stand firm. And so here's the thing. I have had, I'm just going to be honest with you. I have had so many conversations with mature Christians during the pandemic. People in our house church, people in the city, people across the country. And People, over and over again, the idea, the concept that I've heard from a lot of people is, you know what I'm doing right now? I'm eliminating hard relationships. I'm just, you know, if it's a hard relationship, I'm just gonna let it go. I'm just gonna let it drift off. I'm not gonna pursue it. I'm just, because I can isolate, you know, things like that. But the, the thinking is, I, I can't handle hard relationships right now. I don't have, there's too much anxiety, there's a pandemic, election, blah, blah, blah. I can't handle this hard person because they're actually getting harder because of the pandemic. Um, And I've heard this from very mature Christians, very mature followers of Jesus. And I just have to say, that's garbage. That's actually not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, no, Because the gospel is such a big deal, you actually are called, you and I are actually called to fix what's broken, to, to bear with each other, to do the one another's together, to forgive, to work things out, not run, not isolate, not write people off or let people drift away. That's not what any of this passage says. The idea behind what Jesus calls us to do is to actually, as Jesus does, lose our life. Lay down our life. Pick up our cross and follow Jesus. And that actually means hard relationships, hard things that has to get figured out, reconciliation that needs to happen, doesn't wait for you to feel better doesn't wait for you to um, have things slow down a bit in your life and get more rosy. No. It actually means you make the call, write the note, knock on the door, and get to work. That's what standing firm means. It's not a pep talk that we have to actually see our relationships through the lens of the gospel. Now, here's where the jump happens, okay? For you and me, we jump 2,000 years into our world, into our modern situation, and I think there's two presuppositions about this passage in our lives, um, some that can be true of us, but some that can't. So let me work, work a couple things here with you. Paul's actually presupposing that the people hearing this letter are actually in real true community. That's what he's presupposing. He's writing a letter back to the Philippians. He's not writing a letter thinking one day this is gonna be canon of scripture. And people are gonna be reading it 2,000 years from now. No, he's not, he's not writing it this way. He's writing it to a group of people in Philippi who he loves very much. So he's presupposing that they're actually in real, true, authentic community, where they are known and they know others, where they see through the facade of each other's imperfections. That community is a people where they call each other out when they see something that's not right. Um, And the reality is you and I may not be able to see that in our lives. You and I might have friendships, but we don't have people that call us out when they start getting, when we start getting off off the hinge, off the rails. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that can't happen with you and I showing up once or twice a month at the Arvada Center, singing a few songs, grabbing a donut, you know, talking about what we're doing the rest of the day, and then leaving. Paul presupposes that his hearers are actually in real, true, authentic community. Now, Paul also presupposes that your community is a living display of the gospel. That's another presupposition of Paul's. That your community, my community, is actually a living display Of the gospel. And this whole thing is about the gospel. This isn't a self-help talk on how to have conflict um, and how to have better friendships. Uh, This isn't like a can't we all get along and sing kumbaya talk. No. He says, yes, get along. Yes, come together, be of the same mind, so that, okay, the watching world will see the good news, will see the gospel in action. And so these are really important presuppositions for us to wrestle with. He's saying if the Spirit lives in you, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, if that Spirit lives in you, then by extension, you and I should live different. You and I should do relationships different. We should do them with intentionality. When we have conflict, we need to push in and deal with that conflict. Not write each other off and let each other go. See, all eyes are on us when we live as a community of the gospel. The eyes of the watching world. And so we need to deal with our stuff in order to show the world that the gospel is real is powerful, is transformative. There's uh, one, of the, one of the scholars and theologians that has shaped me um, um, quite a bit in my life. And it was funny because the other day people were asking me like, so what are the authors that have shaped me? And this one, for some reason, I forgot to mention Leslie Newbigin. And Leslie Newbigin was a missiologist uh, from the UK. He left the UK mid-1930s and traveled to India with his wife, and they um, just worked for the gospel for in 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 India for forty years, four decades. And when his time, when he was sensing his time in India was done, and and you got to understand, India is a polytheistic uh, place at this time. There is, I mean, it's a uh, Roman, I mean Roman, sorry, um, kind of, but it's kind of like the empire still of of England, you know, at the, at the time. And so but there was multiple languages, multiple worshiping outlets uh, for God and gods. And um, so he de- he's there for 40 years. His wife and him decide to go back to the UK. their are assignment over. Um, they pack two suitcases. They're, they don't have much stuff. They, they actually travel by bus from India overland as far as they could get before taking a boat to the UK I just think that's phenomenal and um, he gets back to the UK 1976 I believe and he's walking around and he's like this place is so different he's like when I left people went to church people worshipped God and now I'm back 40 years later, and it's a pluralistic society, meaning um, just there's so many, there's so many different, there's not one focus, there's so many different focuses. And so he writes uh, a book called, he writes many books, but he writes one book called The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society, and he does a whole chapter called the, A Gospel Hermeneutic. And those are kind of uh, probably a nerdy term for you, but it's the ideas uh, behind it is he's talking about a church family, um, a church family when done right, okay, is actually an, a presentation of the gospel. It's a presentation of the royal announcement that Jesus is Lord. When a community is done right, when a, when a church is done right, that's what it looks like. Uh, that people look at that life, they look in at that community, and and they see this community practicing the one another's, bear with each other, forgive one another, love one another, you know, all that kind of stuff, and how we care for one another and carry one another, and they look in and they say, that is what Jesus is all about. That's what this Announcement that Jesus is Lord looks like right there. That's how you love each other. And he goes on, he writes a couple couple quotes here for you guys. He says, This, and since the gospel does not come as a disembodied message, but as the message of a community which claims to live by it and which invites others to adhere to it, the community's life must be so ordered that it makes sense to those who are so invited. Quick story about what that means. The other day, last Saturday, a bunch of us went over and helped uh, one of our neighbors with her leaves. And uh, Ben and Randy kind of got this whole thing going, and I, and I show up and we we help. Um, there's about 20 of us maybe that help this lady with just a lot of leaves, and blowing out her gutters, and getting everything kind of cleaned up for the fall, because she just couldn't do it. When I heard her story, and the pain in her life, and her husband um, had passed away, and she cares for a son that um, has some needs, and she's kind of at the end of her rope, and I heard her story, and I just had a lot of compassion, Um, and then I showed up at her house, and I didn't know, I didn't know the face and the name, Um, and when I showed up at her house, I'm like, oh, that's the lady that tells on everybody in the neighborhood that's the lady that calls the city and complains about someone's snow shoveling job or lack of snow shoveling job and I was just thinking to myself okay well we're here I'm just I mean this is God's called me to serve I'm serving you know no matter what whoever it is you know I'm here to serve and um and so I'm leaving and I'm driving by a buddy's house who's a neighbor and he's like what were you doing over there and I'm like oh we were helping her with her leaves and he's like you were helping her she's the one that complains and she's the one that does this and and I'm like I know but I just I heard her story too and man I just I feel bad for her and the reason why I said that is not because I'm special or Ben or Randy definitely aren't special. But the point is, is like, like that is like the, the visual of a community, like showing the gospel happening. And, in, and here's another quote from Leslie Newbigin, who, who I love. He says, in contrast to the long period in which the plausibility structure of European society was shaped by biblical tradition. So back in the day, he's like, he's, here's what he's saying. There was a day when it just looked like everything was shaped by biblical tradition. Um, and, and, and he goes on, and he says, in which one could be a Christian without conscious decision because the existence of God was among the self-evident truths, meaning it was just common knowledge and common agreement in society that God existed Okay? and and that all of our structures of society were built around biblical truth. He says, "We are now in a situation where we have to take personal responsibility for our beliefs. He's like, those days are gone. Those days are gone. And we're in a place now that it doesn't it doesn't just saying you're a Christian or or I go to church. He's like that stuff doesn't work." We're not in those days anymore. He says we have to take personal responsibility for our beliefs. And here's where we land. How different are we? I mean, if we are a group of people that on the inside of our group is tension and animosity and infighting and broken relationships that haven't been dealt with and there's not been forgiveness then how does my neighbor look into that and go, "Yeah, I want a piece of that?" Yeah I'd love to have I'd love to have what you're serving. And guys, just on a bigger picture, right now the outside world is looking into the church world and they're not seeing much they like. You're seeing pastors have affairs and um, abuse and, and, and pain and infighting and fracturing and rumors and (laughs) like, how is anybody looking in on that and going, man, that sounds like a something I want to carve out some time for, you know? In our church community right now, I know personally, of some issues that need to be dealt with. And I don't know of some that need to be dealt with. I'm not gonna use names. I'm not as bold as Paul. But you know who you are, let's figure this out. And then we're on the heels of an election that is still contended, still contentious, and many of you are using this as a time to bludgeon others with politics bludgeon family members with politics in what way is that attractive to the gospel in what way maybe you can email me and tell me because i don't think it is we're playing the long game the long game is the resurrection the book of life the the day when god comes and finishes what God started through Jesus. We are a part of making that happen. We are a part of fixing and mending and healing and forgiving and reconciling. We are, as Paul calls us in another letter, we are ministers, we are reconcilers. So let's get to work reconciling. Brian Ashley out hey let hey.